Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. We have been in the last three weeks looking at the book of Jonah, right? And we've been looking at the, the book of Jonah from the perspective of what does it look like to love our city? What does it look like as we gather back together, as we, as we reopen in services, even in these you know, situations and times where we're limited to 100 people and, and that kind of thing? What does it look like to resume church in such a way that the city of Christchurch, that Ototahi, celebrates that we're back? You know, I, I started by saying I love that across lockdown, we were able to love our city. We were able to do things like partner with 0800 Hungry and, and taking up uh, a whole bunch of money, over $1,000 to give to them to help with, with food poverty throughout lockdown. That we were able to do things like uh, minister to the father figures in our city that we're connected with and dropping them uh, care packages and, and loving on them. That we were able to, to deliver uh, food to, to people. We were able to send out meals. We were able to love on the city that, that we are a part of. And I think that's awesome. And the question that I had coming out of lockdown is how do we continue doing that? How do we continue to love our city? How do we behave in such a way that the city would celebrate that we're back? And so we've been looking at this book of, of Jonah, which seems like an odd book to look at when we're asking about how do we love a city, if you know the story of Jonah. But we've been finding that, that God has been speaking through it. And last week I said that the book of Jonah has three main characters. Yeah, we've got Jonah, we've got God, and we've got the city of Nineveh, which is all true. But I did miss out an important set of characters, which are the sailors, right? Jonah, a bunch of it happens on a boat. And there are some sailors on that boat who play a very important role. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at them and their role in the book. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from the message translation. It's taken us three weeks to get to the first chapter, uh, but that is good. We've read it in a funky order. But it says this, One day long ago, God's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, up on your feet, And on your way to the big city of Nineveh, preach to them, they're in a bad way and I can't ignore it any longer. But Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board, joining those going to Tarshish as far away from God as he could get, which is an interesting concept. But God sent a huge storm at sea, the waves towering. The ship was about to break into pieces. The sailors were terrified. They called out in desperation to their gods. They threw everything they were carrying overboard to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship to take a nap. He was sound asleep. The captain came to him and said, what's this? Sleeping. Get up. Pray to your God. Maybe your God will see we're in trouble and rescue us. Then the sailors said to one another, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's draw straws to identify the culprit on the ship who's responsible for this disaster. So they drew straws. Jonah got the short straw. Then they grilled him. Confess, why this disaster? What is your work? Where do you come from? What country? What family? He told them, I am a Hebrew. I worship God, the God of heaven who made sea and land. At that, the men were frightened, really frightened, and said, what on earth have you done? As Jonas talked, the sailors realized that, that he was running away from God. They said to him, what are we going to do with you to get rid of the storm? By this time, the sea was wild and totally out of control. Jonas said, throw me overboard into the sea. Then the storm will stop. It's all my fault. I'm the cause of the storm. Get rid of me, and you'll get rid of the storm. But no, the men tried rowing back to shore. They made no headway. The storm only got worse and worse, wild and raging. 
Then they prayed to God, oh God, don't let us drown because of this man's life and don't blame us for his death. You are God, do what you think is best. They took Jonah and threw him overboard. Immediately, the sea was quieted down. The sailors were impressed, no longer terrified by the sea, but in awe of God, they worshiped God, offered a sacrifice and made vows. Then God assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the fish's belly three days and three nights. Why don't you bow your heads with me and uh, let's pray. God, I thank you as we come together that you are in our midst. God, that you are speaking. God, I pray that as we set aside this time to, to look at your scripture, to look at your word, to, to look at the, the story that you're telling us, I pray that it would not be my words or my ideas, but that you would speak to us, that, that we would be drawn closer to you, that you would become larger, that we would be more convinced of the beauty of the cross. God, I pray that, that you would uh, speak directly into hearts and minds, that you know where we are, you know what we need to receive to move into the plans and purposes you have for us. God, I pray your peace in this room, uh, and I, I pray your authority over this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, this is the, the third week in the, in the book of Jonah. And it's been interesting talking to people uh, about our experience in the book of Jonah. For, for context, the book of Jonah is only uh, four chapters long. So like, if we preach one more week, we will have done uh, a, a sermon a week on, on a chapter, right? That was a weird way of saying that, but I think you get what I'm saying. And it's interesting talking to people. They're like, man, I, I thought, you know, Jonah, David and Goliath, Easter, kind of, you know, like Bible basics. That, that's where we start. Those are easy stories to understand. I kind of thought that I, I had the story of Jonah locked down. I kind of thought that I understood all there was about it because we know the story, don't we? It's a simple story. It's like God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, God, I don't want to go to Nineveh because I hate the Ninevites. That's an interesting thing that we talked about in the first week. Instead, I'm going to go the opposite direction to Tarshish. So God sends a storm and then Jonah gets swallowed by a whale. And then Jonah's like, oh God, I'm really sorry. He prays in the whale, apologizes to God. And so the whale spits Jonah out and he goes on his merry way to Nineveh. And, and then kind of, you know, story, story over. Like it's a fairly simple story, but it's been interesting as we've been looking into it a little bit deeper in the story underneath the story, we find that it's not a tapped out story. It's not a story that we know all of, but instead it's vibrant and God is doing something in it. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at the relationship between Jonah and the sailors. I want to look at the impact that Jonah had on the sailors' lives, and I want to look at the impact the sailors had on Jonah's life. If you're taking notes today, I've titled this sermon, The World Watches. And as I mentioned it before, right, the, the, the book of Jonah is, is kind of classified as, as biblical satire. Throughout the whole book, everyone does the opposite of what they're meant to do. All the actions that they do do are really exaggerated. They're over the top. They're, they're meant to get our attention in some sort of way. And the first point of irony that we have is here in chapter 1. It's, it's funny. Jonah is on a boat headed to Tarshish. He's on the boat headed to Tarshish. Why? Because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because the Ninevites are dirty heathens and he hates them. And so here he is, he's on this boat trying to get away from the dirty heathens. And who is he surrounded by on the boat? Dirty heathens. He's surrounded by the dirty heathen sailors. It's funny, trust me. Like, I don't know if that's so funny, Jono. It's funny in a Bible nerd sort of way. Right? And he's on this boat avoiding Nineveh because he doesn't think that Nineveh can or should turn to God. He thinks they're too far gone. They're too depraved. They're too evil. He's cynical. And the book of Jonah is meant to be a mirror to us. Every time Jonah does something, we are called to ask ourselves, do we do that? Is there a little bit of Jonah in me? Is there something in my life where I look out at the world around me? I look out at my society. I look out at my city and I'm a little bit like Jonah. 
Maybe I think they're too far gone. Maybe I think that, that I would be better running off to some idealistic Tarshish where, where I don't have to put anything out there, where I can just live to myself. We've talked about it a number of times, right? Maybe we should just build a quipper's land. That's not true. We're not, we're not going for that, right? Just, just for clarity, quipper's land is not policy of a quipper's church. But sometimes it can feel like that's the only response to the Bible. Ah, the world is broken and it's hard and maybe we should just buy a piece of land and go live there. And I don't know, Matt will have to teach me how to milk cows and stuff because I've got no idea how to do those things. I'll do something else. I'll preach to you, right? That'll be, that'll be my contribution to the community. Please, please say I don't have to milk any cows. It can feel like we need to enclave ourselves and just, man, I'll just look after myself. I'll just look after my immediate circle, those near to me. I'll have some goals, some aspirations. But my, my purpose in life is just to live a comfy, pleasant life. The, the, the only thing about that is there are other people in the boat. Right, just like Jonah, there are other people in the boat. There are people that you live with. There are people that you work with, people in your neighborhood. And what the book of Jonah is asking us, especially in this chapter, is do you believe that you can make an impact on them? Are we like Jonah? If we're honest with ourselves, do we actually believe that God can change our city? Do we actually want to love our city? And the purpose of the sailors in this story is for God to take Jonah by the ear, spin him around, point him at the sailors and say, you are running from the heathens. Here are some heathens. This is what you're here for, them. He's saying, Jonah, you are here for them. This is your purpose. I don't care that you don't like them. I don't care that you think they're beyond hope. I don't care that they are very, very different than you are. You have no right to be so absorbed in your own goals that you miss that there is a mission in front of you. You are here for them. And I'm really grateful that God says that to Jonah. Because if he said something like that to me, I would feel quite convicted, right? So I can read it and be like, yeah, Jonah, come on, get your act together. Why don't you love on the sailors? Meanwhile, in my life, See, the sailors are, are here to teach us two things. I've got two points today. They're short. The first thing that the sailors teach us is everyone worships. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, everyone worships. It's good. See, we, we see this most pointedly in, in verse 5. The storm whips up and the sailors were terrified. They, they call out in desperation to their gods. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that, that everyone knows, that every human knows in their heart that there is something more than what we see. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. We, we all know that there is something more to life, that it's not just about the here and now. And everyone pursues something. Everyone is inherently religious. Everyone worships something to meet that need and desire. It's built into us. We have to have something beyond us, something bigger. We all worship, whether we worship work, right? Unless we're working, unless we're producing something, unless we're doing something, we don't feel like we have value. And when we relax, we feel guilty. Or maybe we worship love unless someone is telling us, unless someone is doting on us, unless someone is constantly affirming our worth through their affection, we feel like we don't matter. Or maybe we worship things unless we have the latest car or the latest gadget or we're amassing something in which we can depend only on ourselves. We feel like the wheels are falling off on life. Or we worship one of the other thousand sort of things that we can worship that we seek to bring us meaning but will only disappoint us. Everyone worships. And like the sailors, we often don't realize what we're worshiping until the pressure comes, until things start to get hard, until the storms pick up in life. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves crying out to these things, hey, help me, save me, the, the waves are big in life, I'm feeling like, like things are under threat. But all too often, we are worshiping unliving gods, idols made in our own image, and we turn to them and ask them to do something that they simply cannot. 
Often those things are good things just simply put in the wrong place. Work is not an evil thing. Love is not an evil thing. Enjoying life is not evil, but when those are the things in which we find our primary meaning, we turn to them to be the ultimate thing and they disappoint us and we crush them under the weight of our expectations and we suffer the consequences. See, here's the important thing that we learn from the sailors. Everyone worships, but not only does everyone worship, worship is naturally rooted in fear. I think, John, that doesn't sound, doesn't sound entirely theologically correct, right? I know some scriptures say things like, perfect love casts out all fear, and, and there is no fear in love. Like, I'm pretty sure that we're not here meaning to be like in fear of, of God. I think you might, have, might want to take that one back, right? like rewind it, let's just cut that out of the recording. No, see, what, what we see here is, is that we see it in, in how, the, how the sailors think of God at the end of the chapter. This is human inclination. This is our natural state of relating to, to something more than us. When, when Jonah says, throw me in and the storm will stop, they say, oh God, don't let us drown. If we go to the next, next slide. Oh God, don't let us drown because of this man's life. And don't blame us for his death. You are God. Do what you think is best. Right? This is a telling example because what they're doing is they are relating to the God like they relate to their gods. They are relating to the one and only God, the true God, the living God, in the same way that they relate to their small, unliving idols. See, their gods are angry and vindictive because their gods are made in their image. And so they choose to relate in the only way that they know how to relate to a God as if the God is like their gods, that he's angry, that he's vindictive, that he can't actually do anything in their life. They don't believe that they have a father who will listen to their prayers. You know, it's human nature to know that there's something more and to be afraid of it. To feel like we are ants and there is a big boot up there somewhere and if we don't live perfectly in line with the way that we should, that we'll get squashed. And so we deal with God when we have to. When the storms come up, when things get hard, when it gets hard, we come to God with, with deals. We naturally try and, and negotiate instead of trusting and surrendering to Him because deep down we're not truly convinced that He loves us. See, the human heart, unless we have a relationship with God through Jesus, is full of fear and bargaining. And I want to say that, that just because we're in the room today, just because we're gathered together at church, it does not mean that we are exempt from this. This is something that all too often is a natural thing, a natural proclivity in our own heart to interact with God as if He is not the God, but He is a small God that we have made into an idol. We're not exempt from this. We can be just like the sailors, only praying in times of trouble. I don't know about you, I know I've prayed these sorts of prayers. God, if you just get me out of X, Y, or Z, if you, if you just give me this thing, if they just notice me, if you just fix this situation, I'll do whatever you want. I won't swear anymore, not even in my head, right? I'll go to church every third, almost every Sunday. I'll only take a few Sundays off. I'll go to church, and when I'm not at church, I'll stream church online. God, I'll do whatever you want all of my life. God, we sing that song. God, take my all, take my best, everything. Just fix my situation. Here is what I'm offering you. Here is what my, my deal is on the table. God, do you take, it's like we think God is Shark Tank. Here's my pitch, God. Please, someone invest in me. It's a prayer of terror. It's a prayer of, of bargaining, of dealing with a God that you don't trust. Right? We are naturally inclined to do this. How do you know if it's a prayer of terror? Right? It's one thing to cry out to God in terror. It's another t- thing to cry out terrified of God. How do you know if it's a prayer of terror? What happens when the trouble passes? 
What happens when the storm subsides? What happens when you get out of trouble? Do you find yourself no longer having any interest in praying? Do you find your prayer is answered, you cool off immediately, that God goes back on the shelf because truly he was simply an idol to you, an unliving God? something that you could control? Or on the other side, do you find that that in your prayer of terror, if it is not answered, that you get so bitter and so angry with God that you walk away from Him, showing Him that all, showing yourself that all you ever wanted to do was to use Him anyway? I think it's all too easy to pray prayers of terror, to live a life terrified even of the one thing in which we should find satisfaction and trust. Even as a people of faith, we can so easily step into this wrong way of relating to God. In our prayer of terror, we say, God, I'll do anything if you get me out of this. And God says, just simply trust me. Simply rely on me. Simply make me your God. Know that I am with you. My ways are higher. And we say, God, I'll do anything but that. Ask me to, to sacrifice anything. But if you ask me to obey you, if you ask me to trust you, that's, that's too far. I can't give up that because we're actually wanting to control and we're unwilling to trust. You know, Brendan Manning, he puts it this way. He says, do I worship God? Or do I worship my experience of God? Is God a product or is he Lord? Because he can't be both. And it's a real struggle of the Christian walk to be honest about how we're relating to God and to adjust. Because I found in my life, this is not a one-off. Oh, I've realized, God, that I'm treating you like a product. I see that proclivity. I, I know that I'm doing that in my own life. I turn from that. I realize that, that that way of relating to you was wrong and damaging to me and damaging to my relationship with you. I acknowledge you as God and as Lord. You are not someone who I can pray or bargain with in this place of terror. I acknowledge that. I turn from it, and now I'm fine for the rest of my life. Not how I have experienced it. Right, I'll find that I'm relating to a God in, in, which, in a way in which is not healthy for me, is not true of who God is, that I've made him less than he truly is. I realize that I repent from it, I turn from it, I, I live, and then later on, oh man, somewhere along the way, I didn't make a decision to do it, but, but this way of thinking crept back in, and I'm relating in a way that is damaging again, even, even with faith in Jesus. And, and so I wonder if, if we can struggle with that in this room, if even in us, our worship can be dictated not by, by love, not by trust, but by fear, how much more so can it be for everyone else? For, for those that we know who, who are close to us but far from God, if, if we can still default into fear-based prayer, a product relationship rather than trust, imagine how it would be if you've never found a God that you can trust. To only know gods that you have to fear. Gods that we treat as tools who are ultimately false. You know, Andy Crouch puts it this way. He says, at first, idols give you everything and ask for nothing. But eventually, idols will give you nothing and ask for everything. Every other thing that we can worship in life is ultimately an idol. Not necessarily, like I said, because it's a bad thing, but because it's a good thing that we've put in the wrong place. We've asked it to be more than it can be, and that weight crushes it, and ultimately it crushes us. We make it an idol, and initially that can feel great. Initially we can find, man, when I just find my esteem and my value from work, I go to work and I'm solving problems, and people are telling me I'm, I'm amazing, and, and I feel like I'm you know, irreplaceable, and this is incredible, and we keep on going. And, and then a little bit longer, we find, oh man, this promotion, but, but not every promotion you go for, you get, and you feel like you're, you're overlooked. And, and initially, this idol you know, asked nothing. It was easy. You were just doing your job, and it gave you everything. But then you start to find that it's not really giving you anything more, and it's, it's asking more and more of you, and you're clamoring for the attention and the worth and the affirmation, but it falls short, and it fails you. Because that's ultimately all an idol can do. 
And, and the challenge is where in our life have we embraced idols? Maybe even our relationship with God, we have diminished him down to something smaller than he is, attempting to relate with him like an idol. And where in the lives of those around us can we recognize, hey, they are looking for the right thing in the wrong place, and how can I lovingly come alongside them and let them know that there is more? Which leads me to my second point, the second thing that the sailors teach us, just as I get the band up because I'm, I'm almost done, is who is our faith for? Faith for who? One of my favorite verses in the, in the whole book of Jonah is this verse in, uh, in, in verse 6 of chapter 1. The storm is picked up and it says, Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship to take a nap. He was sound asleep. The captain came to him and said, what's this, sleeping? Get up, pray to your God. Maybe your God will see we're in trouble and rescue us. Again, a moment in which we are meant to recognize the irony. The man of God, the prophet, the one who should be the one telling the heathens to wake up and to turn towards God is asleep in the hold of the ship and the heathen, the ungodly man, has to come down, wake up the godly man and ask him to pray. This is not the way that the story is meant to go. It's a great moment, and he has two issues with Jonah. Number one, how is he asleep? He says, Jonah, why aren't you aware of the danger that we are all in? You might be done with life. You might think, I don't care if this ship sinks or if it sails, but you're not on the boat on your own. There are other people on this boat. How are you not aware of the problems that everyone else is going through with you? How are you so self-absorbed in your own moment that you can't see that you're asleep? And the implication is that Jonah is probably asleep because he is so full of his own grief. I don't know if you've experienced that, but that, that moment in life where we can be so overwhelmed with emotions that it feels like our body just shuts down and all we want to do is sleep. That's a real and understandable physiological response to that emotionally overwhelming state. This is that moment that Jonah is in. He is so full of his own self-doubts, his own guilt, that he escapes into sleep. He is so distant from the problems of the people around him that he doesn't even know of the danger. And again, Jonah is a mirror for us. Just as God asked Jonah a question at the end of the book, the captain's questions to Jonah are for us. Are we asleep? Are we aware of the problems in our world? You know, that, that question is for us corporately as the church and it's for us individually because we are who we are. We are corporately who we are individually. You know, this question of are we asleep is not an opportunity for us to sit back and to criticize the church. Yeah, no, I don't feel like the church is doing enough over here. I don't feel like the church is doing enough over there. I don't feel like the church is mobilizing. Those are all good things to think about. They are all good areas to be aware of, but the response needs to be, man, I see a problem over there and the church can be a part of that. And I am the church. I am a part of the church. And so if I've seen the problem, I can be a part of the solution. It's not sitting back and pointing out the errors, but it's saying, man, where can I be a part of the solution? Because let's be honest with ourselves. We are, we are naturally inclined to be like Jonah. I know I am naturally inclined to be like Jonah, too wrapped up in my own problems, too wrapped up in my own hurts and my own pains, that if I ever do work up the courage to raise my head and look out at the problems in the world around me, my response can be to be one to go, want to go back to sleep. Man, there's, there's pain out there and there's hurt out there and I don't know the first place to start and trying to do something about it. And sometimes the way that we cope is we say, someone else should do something about that, but not me. I, I'm, I'm too overwhelmed. I'm too hurting. I'm too messed up myself. I have too many of my own problems. Maybe once I've worked it out, I can do something. The only problem is if we wait for ourselves to be perfect, we'll never do anything. 
And so the question becomes, we're asleep below deck. Why are we asleep? But, but because it's a balance. But I'm not saying that we need to be kind of masochistic and, oh man, don't worry about the hurt and the pain in my life. I'll pretend everything's okay and try and, try and help everyone else because we can't do it on our own. We're not called to solve the problems in our own strength. God says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, we can rely on Him. It's okay to have problems and pains, but we can't let them keep us down. It's moving in the midst of that because God also says to us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Fear and trembling imply that it's not always easy. It's not going to be a simple thing. It's not necessarily a walk in the park. It's not always sunshine and butterflies, but it matters and it's, it counts. We make a difference. God promises that He is at work in us and through us. He just asks us to act. We can't be asleep below deck. We can't ignore the problems of the world. Even if we ignore them, they're still there. And once we've seen them, there's a responsibility in us to be a part of the solution. The second issue the captain has with Jonah is why aren't you helping? It's not just seeing the problems, but why aren't you helping? Why aren't you praying for us? Why aren't you doing what you can? And the question that I believe comes through the book of Jonah to us is, is are we helping? Once we're aware of the problems, what are, what are we doing about it? And see, here Jonah redeems himself. The captain says, what are you doing? And then an opportunity presents itself. This, the sailors start asking him why the storm is, ha- storm is happening. And they, they find out that he's running from God. And, and Jonah realizes that he can impact those around him. He can do something. He is not powerless, that he can act. And in acting, God will do something. Jonah realizes that he can make a difference. And so he gives himself up. He says, throw me overboard. And in doing so, he helps to save the heathen sailors. It's this incredible moment that is completely out of character for the prophet fleeing from the call to preach to the heathens in Nineveh. In this moment, he becomes the the complete opposite of who he is. He's turned upside down and he chooses to give his life to save the heathens on the boat when he is defined by his hate for the heathens in Nineveh. But in that moment of choosing to go against himself, choosing to seek something larger, something more, something bigger, the result is that the sailors' lives are saved and the sailors are drawn to God. See, one of the, the theological themes of Jonah is that he is the worst prophet in all of the Old Testament. He is the most incompetent. He does everything in the worst way. He has the worst attitude. He is not an example of a man of God that we would hold up in the Old Testament. He is the worst prophet with the best outcome. Of all of the prophets, no one else sees the transformation, the redemption. Every other prophet is basically maligned and not listened to by almost everyone. And yet here Jonah is, he basically doesn't even preach. He he does next to nothing. He is the worst at his job and he results in the, the most transformation. Because I think when we read the book of Jonah, we're not meant to marvel at Jonah. We're meant to marvel at the God who works through Jonah. And again, it's intentionally exaggerated. It's ironic. It's satirical so that there is no way that we can think, oh, maybe I just have to behave like Jonah. Maybe I just have to walk out onto the street and say, hey, if you don't turn to God, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. That's the way to preach a sermon to get someone to come to faith. Fortunately, some people have taken that from the, the book of Jonah, but we won't talk about that today. 
I used to say he did the wrong thing. He did it in the worst way. He barely obeyed God. And yet God moved through him to change the world, to see a city overturned, to see a city restored, to see a people redeemed. When we read of Jonah's self-sacrifice, this this moment in which he denies himself operates in a way totally opposite to who he is. is thrown overboard and is swallowed by a, a fish, by a whale, spends three days in a watery tomb. Someone else is meant to come to mind. Someone else who, who didn't simply spend three days in a watery tomb, who wasn't simply swallowed by a fish, but Jesus Christ who didn't come to calm a storm of his own making but to atone for our mistakes, to remove the ramifications of our sin. And he didn't spend three days in a whale. He spent three days in a tomb. He defeated death itself for us. So we are called to be like Jonah, not to copy Jonah, but to realize that that we are not saviors, but we have the, the mighty responsibility, the opportunity to point to a savior, to be as N.T. Wright says, broken signposts who simply point the way to Jesus, knowing that we are not enough, knowing that we can never convince anyone into the kingdom, knowing that, that it is not in us, but that we point to Jesus. See, church, the world watches. The world has eyes on us. The question is, what are they seeing? Where are we pointing? We are called to point to Jesus, showing a better way to live of true worship not worshiping the small gods that demand our fear, not making the one true God into a small God and, and, and trusting Him as, a, as an idol, but trusting Him fully, trusting Him as the God, as the one true God in our life, in our worship and in our actions, in our faith lived out, not just for us, but for others. Choosing to be aware of the problems around us refusing to be asleep and doing what we can with what we have, which is likely to be inconvenient. It's likely to be hard. It's likely to cost us. But love is just tender emotions until it costs you something and we have problems to solve. There is a world enslaved to gods of fear. And when we do what we can with the opportunities in front of us, we see God move. You are capable of changing things. You are capable of changing the city. You are capable of of bringing and overturning, of meeting fear with love, of meeting disappointment with hope, of speaking into a climate and anxiety of division and anxiety, of of doubt and of fear that there is a God who is for us, that there is something beyond what we can see, that there is a God who is beyond what we can ask, think or imagine, who loves us, who calls us by name, who has a plan and a purpose for us, that we can speak into an environment lacking hope or faith, hope and faith. We can tell them the good news. It's what we're called to do. If nothing else, this chapter of Jonah is meant to grab us by the ear, turn us towards the sailors and say them. To turn us towards the world and say them, the world is watching. What are we going to do? The world is watching. What are we going to do? What are they going to see? Too many people are, are setting the tone of what the church is known by by things that do not draw people closer to God. And we can be angry about that as much as we want, but let's not be known by what we're against. Let's be known by what we're for. Let's intentionally pursue those things that are beautiful, those things that that bring honor to God, those things that make God bigger. Let's let's not choose to to defame or, or go against what they are doing. Let's instead present a more compelling alternative. We serve a God who loves you. We serve a God who's for you. And so church, with that in mind, 
I want to tell you about something we're doing at the end of this month, and then we're going to go out with a song of praise. At the end of this month, we're doing a thing called Heart Week. Heart Week is our opportunity to love our city. We're not saying we should only love the city one week of the year, but we're saying this week we will be intentional about it. This week we will pursue it wholeheartedly. This week we will do all we can so that we build something in us that can be a rhythm that we repeat, that we would start something now that would make a difference in times to come. From the 25th of October to the 31st of October, we're loving our city. And so what we've asked e-groups to do is to come up with ideas of, man, how can you love your city? How can you meet your city where they are? How can we do things big and small? It doesn't matter the size. God's going to move through it. We're believing for the miraculous. And so what we're going to do in kind of a couple of days, early this coming week, we're going to send out an email to everyone who's getting it. We're going to post about it on Facebook with a number of initiatives that e-groups have come up with to love on our city. And, and you can feel free to, to sign up for one that your e-group is doing, sign up for one another e-group is doing, sign up for multiple. You might have something that, that you're passionate about and you're not currently in an e-group. Let us know about that and we would love to put weight behind it because we are who we are. The problems that we see and choose to meet are the problems that we can see and choose to meet. Let's not be asleep. Let's be helping. And as we do, May it be an act of worship that draws other, others closer to a God who is for them. Would we act in such a way that like the sailors, the people around us pause and take stock, that they would be drawn closer to God, that they would see the way that we live and it would be a compelling testimony to them of the fact that there is a living God who is for them. That there is something more. That we would start something in this week which would plant something in us and in the city which would bear fruit days to come. Church, could you bow your heads? Could you close your eyes? The first thing I would like to do is I want to pray for us for boldness, that we would know that God is working through us, that God is working in us, that God is working with us, that it is not the size of our action, but it's the God in the action who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask, think, or imagine according to His power at work within us. God, I pray as, as we are here as your people, as we start to think, to dream towards, man, what could Heart Week look like? How could we engage with you in bringing transformation to the city? That, that the, the fear, that the doubt, that the worry in us would be met with hope, with faith, and with love. That we would know that we're not trying to do something good enough. We're just trying to do something. And that you are good enough. That you meet us in our action and that you bring transformation. God, to every idea, we breathe on it and we speak life. To every hope, we affirm it, that we would be a people who do not sit back, who do not wander, who, who, who do not stay asleep, but we would choose to be awake and to be doing something, to be bringing your faith, your hope, and your love to a world that needs it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.